Welcome to Health Matters at Sargent College. The mission of Sargent College is to advance, preserve, disseminate, and apply knowledge in the health and rehabilitation sciences. BU's Sargent College strives to create an environment that fosters critical and innovative thinking to best serve the healthcare needs of society. Each episode of Health Matters at Sargent College will include faculty, students, or alumni who will share their knowledge with you. I'm Karen Jacobs, the Associate Dean of Digital Learning and Innovation at Sargent College, and I'll be your moderator for each episode. Welcome to this episode of Health Matters at BU Sargent College. I'm delighted to have Jesse as the guest of this episode. Jesse, your office is right down the hall from mine, and I get to say hi to you whenever I walk by. I'm thrilled that you're a guest on Health Matters, and perhaps you can give us some background and your connection with Boston University. Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. So hi, everyone. My name is Jesse Marrera. I'm a clinical assistant professor in human physiology at Boston University. As Karen said, I'm just down the hall from her on the fifth floor at Sargent. If you ever want to chat, feel free to stop by. I kind of have a long history, I guess, with Sargent College. I came after undergrad for my master's degree in human phys, and I think that's when I just fell in love. So I ended up staying after my master's for a PhD in human physiology, and I worked on both campuses, on the Med Campus and on the Charles River Campus. And then after a postdoc at the Med Campus, I was recruited for faculty, and I interviewed, and now I'm here. <laughs> well, you know, we're so delighted, you know, that you're here. Can you share, you know, what area of research and teaching is of interest to you? Sure, yeah. So, as far as my teaching goes, I am a cardiovascular physiologist so, by training. So I teach cardiovascular pathophysiology, and I'm working on developing some advanced courses in cardiovascular science as well. But then I also have this nice little foray into neuroscience. So I do teach neuroanatomy and neurophysiology as well. But having left the bench behind, pretty much, my research now focuses on inclusive pedagogy. So how do we make our classroom spaces more inclusive for people of color, for queer people, for women, people who are traditionally marginalized in the academy. Thank you. So all your areas of interest are so important. Today, we're in this episode, we're going to focus on the last one you were talking about. So I'm going to start with my first question, which is, what are ways we can act to be more inclusive of the LGBTQIA plus community in research. Let's start with research. Sure, yes. Yeah. So this is something I think about a lot, right? When we have human participants research, we often do things, for example, like taking demographics when we do, you know, the enrollment for a given study participant. And it can be as simple to be inclusive-minded about study design as doing inclusive demography. So asking questions that are, you know, in a non-marginalizing way about people's sexual orientation, their gender identity, and other facets of their personal identity. And immediately that increases the quality of the data you collect in a human study because 
now you're going to be able to run stratifications by these variables and see if, for example, a disease you're studying is differentially burdening this population. And that added knowledge, you know, really helps clinicians hone in on how to treat certain demographics. So it really just begins, I think, at at the enrollment. Yeah, and this is something that you have really investigated very thoroughly, and I believe you have a paper on this, is that right, or writing a paper? I'm very fortunate, yeah. We just got commissioned, wonderful group of people and myself, by the American Journal of Physiology, Heart and Circulatory Physiology. I'm friendly with the editor there, Dr. Mary Lindsay, who's been a wonderful mentor of mine, and she was like, I think that people are probably just lacking in resources, right? People might want to do this, but they don't know how. So if if y'all really put together like a survey tool that people could just copy and paste questions out of to take inclusive demographics, maybe it would lower the bar and more people would be able to do that. So has this paper been written already or is this something that, that you're working on right now? Yeah, we worked on that over the past probably six months and it, it has just come out. It's in press now. So you can find it on PubMed and at the American Journal of Physiology website. So it is out. Oh, great. Can I put you on the spot for the title and maybe sharing a little bit more that's in the article? Sure. Ooh, the title is somewhat wordy. So if you'll bear with me a moment, I'll pull it up. It's it's really just about creating inclusive demographics. Our paper is the importance of survey demographic questions to foster inclusion in medicine and research and reduce health inequities for LGBTQIA 2S plus individuals. And really, you know, it has a couple different subsections in the, in the article where we outline the different reasons why you might want to be inclusive with your demographic taking. So like I mentioned before, there's some physiological reasons. You might identify different disease burdens in different populations. There are some social reasons. If, you know, queer people we who are everywhere should by happenstance enroll in a study and take a demographic survey and get asked a question like, what is your gender? And the only two options are man and woman, and they might be a non-binary person, for example. That's very othering. So you actually might do harm you don't even know you're doing to people who try to enroll in your study if you don't take inclusive demographics. And then lastly, I think in today's really challenging political and social climate where there's been a lot of, you know, attacks on the LGBTQ community, it's important for us to remember ways in which we can be inclusive of them. And I think by fostering that in medicine and research, that's one way to kind of counteract all the turmoil. Yeah, this is, you know, this is an important article and I hope others will access it. It sounds like it will be easily accessible through a search and maybe you'll be able to repeat at the end of the episode the title and the journal and how people can get hold of it. Sure thing, yeah. Oh, thank you. So another question is where do we begin if we want to learn more about health disparities in the LGBTQIA plus community? Yeah. Where to begin is sometimes tricky, right? Because it feels like it's a whole, it is its whole own area of of knowledge. And I think the best place to begin are with some of the position statements from, you know, major societies. Like there's a really great piece by Dr. Uh, Carl Street and another one that pairs with it by Dr. Billy Kassiris. And the two of those are American Heart Association position statements on assessing and addressing the health needs in uh, different subpopulations within the LGBTQ community. And so, you know, just these brief three, four page position statements are really great if you wanna get the gist of what we know, what we don't know, 
And then, you know, like anything, when I teach my students, the references are great. So when you find a good paper like that, start going through the things they cited. And that'll just take you eventually down the rabbit hole of reading. But there's more out there than I think we might initially suspect there is on health inequities and what might be mediating them. So just all begins with the reading. Yeah, you know, the readings are important. You know, we have so much media out there that it's really important to be reading evidence-based literature to become more informed. Oh, I totally agree because that's, you know, the tricky thing too in the digital age is there's a lot of misinformation on the internet. And so you have to be able to effectively sift through that. And I think that's why, yeah, I agree. The best place to start is with the evidence-based stuff. Yeah, and you gave some really good strategies. So even with your own article that is now published or available, looking at the references that you have and then following through with those to get more information is important. You know, is there any reading in particular, a book, a couple of books that you might recommend that people begin to, to read to be more knowledgeable? I think, honestly, yeah, exposing ourselves to narratives, even in a non-scientific way sometimes by, for example, queer authors, if you're a reader, it just helps you see the world through a different lens. You know, I think reading is always going to be a key to getting there. There is one book that's actually an autobiography of a transgender scientist. It's the autobiography of a transgender scientist, I believe, but it's by Dr. Ben Bars, who was a transgender neuroscientist. And he really laid out all of the, you know, experiences he had as an academic in neuroscience before and after publicly transitioning. So I think, yeah, like even if it's not like a textbook or a medical article, picking something up and reading through someone else's lens can really help you gain perspective. Now that's good advice. I'm, I'm going to get that book too, and I hope our listeners will avail themselves to, to reading that as well. I think both, both ways of looking at information is so important, and being educated is key, I think, to helping, I hope, someday eliminate health disparities. So, Jesse, you have a busy schedule and, you know, teaching and all the other work that you do. What are some meaningful, and in the occupational thing language, occupations that you like or hobbies or activities that you like besides working? Oh, gosh. I love playing soccer. I stay very involved. I played soccer a majority of my life. And now as an adult, I somehow found myself on a co-ed over 30 team. But that's been lovely. And I actually recruited Dr. Lisa Roberts, one of our colleagues here. She's a good friend of mine, and I got her on the soccer team as well. So we have games every Friday night, some pickup on Tuesdays, um, sometimes pick up on a Sunday. So I really like to get outside and stay active. And on top of that, I, I love running. I love to go for a long, like slow run and just clear my head when I can't look at the manuscript anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I certainly understand that. I don't run, um, I walk, um, but <laughs> um, just being outside in nature is, is so important. So as we come to the end of this wonderful episode, what's your why? You know, what gets you up in the morning? What gets you over to Sergeant College? What's your why? Oh, the why I feel like is ever evolving. You know, my why was I loved science and I love the bench. And as I forayed through my graduate studies and then as a postdoc into teaching, the why for right now is really the students. 
I connect with them super well and they're so open and honest and you know when I go in the classroom and talk about marginalized communities and I'm authentic with my identity the students resonate with that and they'll come and tell me personal things about their identities or struggles they're having and it lets me connect with them as people you know and so I'll, my office hours end up full and the students are laughing and they're learning about science and about life and how to be a person and I think the why is definitely the students Oh, that's great. And I have to say, that's my why, too. Jesse, thank you so much for being on Health Matters. And our listeners, thank you for following Health Matters. We hope you're enjoying each and every episode. So stay tuned to future episodes. Thanks again, Jesse. Thanks so much, Karen. 